Hey, good morning, church. Good to see you all. Good to hear you singing God's praises together. We're going to study his word. So if you'd open your Bible to the book of Acts, back in Acts. Acts chapter 5, as we continue, I'm going to pick up where we left off again a couple weeks ago. I'll start reading in verse 17 if you'd follow along in God's word. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you to not teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, referring to Jesus. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I think one of the most convicting things about the church in the book of Acts is that they were not 
worshiping the idols of safety and control. There was a sense of boldness. There was a sense of spirit-empowered risk-taking that marked this early movement of believers. You you think about your own life and contemplate this on on our way into studying this text. Do you ever reflect on your own life and where you are in your life and reach a conclusion that like 90% of my decisions are driven by fear? I'm controlled by fear. I'm, I'm afraid of what I might lose. I'm afraid of possible outcomes not going my way. I'm afraid of the unknown, so on and so forth, right? Our Christian brothers and sisters who live in hard places in the world in persecuted environments and persecuted countries, they have, um, they have a kind of grit about their lives and that kind of grit that comes only when faith is tested, If you've ever spoken to believers who live in persecuted parts of the world where following Jesus has stakes associated, following Jesus costs them something. There's genuine risk involved and that brings something of an effect on their lives, a grit, a resiliency about their faith, a a muscle in their faith that's so, so strong and so inspiring, right? That's what happens when, when endurance is really tested. I, um, I went on a long run yesterday. I went on, an, for me, it's an eight and a half mile run that I went on with a friend named Dave. And uh, so we met early in the morning and Dave knows a lot more about running than I'll ever know about running. And he has a lot better conditioning than I'll ever have. He's run 25 marathons and he's kind of been my sort of running coach. I've been in this for about two and a half years dabbling and he's like way in deep into this, this whole world. And so we're, we're gearing up and kind of warming up there in the parking lot and, and Dave starts to tell me that he's looked at my numbers, at my running stats. We share a running app so he can look at all my numbers. And he says, I've been looking at your runs. I, I know the distances you run and I know the pace that you're able to run these days. And he says, so I've got a great running route in store for us today. It's an eight and a half mile run and we're going to try to keep such and such a pace on our way there. And, and it was a great run uh, until we reached one particular place in our city that my running app calls Beechwood Hill. And I started calling it that cursed hill. That was my new name for it. As we were running up about halfway up Beechwood Hill, I'm like, I'm renaming this thing. This is not Beechwood Hill, that cursed hill. And so we're running up that cursed hill and um, I'm really started to get gassed because we're running steadily up this thing constantly for, I wrote it down, three minutes and 52 seconds of nonstop running up this hill. And I'm breathing like I am literally about to die. I'm sucking wind in a major, and there's no way to hide it. My pride, I don't want to sound like this, but I got no choice I'm sucking wind back here, two feet behind Dave. And Dave is like a Tesla. He's just utterly silent. You know, like, like a baby that you're holding late at night. And they just, just quietly just breathe in and breathe. That's Dave just going up Beechwood Hill. And so there I am. And I'm, what, my main goal is to not die on the way up Beechwood Hill. And while we're going up, about minute two of the almost four minutes, I started to entertain... Um, hard thoughts about Dave. Um, <laughs> I'm like, Dave wants to kill me. Apparently, I, I'm, 
I'm going to die right here in Mountain Brook. They're going to have a brick on the sidewalk right here. My kids are going to be like, yeah, this is where dad ate it. Like, and it's going to say, you know, like, thought he was an athlete, uh, was a musician, right? So, something that's just going to forever live in memorial of the fact that I shouldn't have tried this hill. But here's the thing. Dave knew. Dave knew running. Dave knew his running, but Dave knew my running as well. And so what became clear when we finished the run, and we did finish the run, what became clear is Dave chose that hill. He chose that pace. He chose that route. He chose that hill. And when I completed the run, it felt awesome. Guess why? Because of that cursed hill. <laughs> because of Beechwood Hill. The glory was only as good as the grueling experience it was to keep running up that hill. There's something those early Christians had, and we need it, and it's called endurance. Because we want to tap out, and we want to tap out way too soon. And we're going to learn something as we look at this text that God gives these foundations for endurance in the life of the Christian, not just then, but now. Three foundations for the endurance of believers. Number one, opposition is expected. That's a conviction of those who will endure. Opposition is expected. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. Not, not sure if you've noticed, but as we've been walking through the book of Acts and studying this book, things have been heating up. Things have been intensified, really on all sides. I mean, the gospel is making more and more progress uh, but also the hostility to the gospel is getting more and just ratcheting up chapter by chapter by chapter. It's ratcheting up the intensity. So what begins, and this is in your notes, what begins with mockery in chapter two, there's this escalation, right? Then you come into chapter four and there's the arrest of two apostles and that's accompanied by threats and warnings from the religious establishment. You move from chapter four into chapter five and now all the 12 apostles are arrested and they're not only threatened, but they're physically beaten. That's our text in verse 40 of chapter 5. You keep reading, and we, we will keep reading. We're going to get to chapter 7, where Stephen isn't merely arrested, and he's not merely beaten. He becomes the first martyr. He's stoned to death. So again, we're ratcheting it up, dialing it up, moment by moment. You get to chapter 8 and following, and you see the beginnings of what will become a strategic empire-wide program of persecution where everybody's in cahoots, both the Jewish religious establishment as well as the pagan Roman Empire get into uh, working together to stamp out the Christian gospel. And if you're there and you're running that particular race in the first century, the race of faith there, you might be tempted to think, why are we breathing so hard? Why is this so incredibly Difficult. I thought in the Great Commission, he said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So why so much heat if God is with us? In so many places you see this truth in Scripture. Righteousness is rewarded in heaven, but not always on earth. So many of the Psalms, you're, you're eavesdropping on the prayer life of a believer in the Old Testament, and what you hear them praying is, God, I did the right thing. Why is it so hard right now? I've just been doing what you told me to do. I'm living a life of faith. I'm living, trusting in your word. I'm following your commands. I'm keeping the covenant. What's up? 
Why is it so hard? Why am I sucking wind out here while the wicked are doing awesome and I'm out here sucking wind? And you hear in the Psalms, Psalm after Psalm, people right about to tap out. They're right on the verge of just saying, hey, I'm done. You come over from the Old Testament, you come into the book of Acts. Isn't it odd the timing of this pressure that the early church is facing. The timing of these arrests and beatings is very interesting. Look down in your text at verse 16. So we started reading at verse 17 because we talked about verse 16 two weeks ago, but look at the transition from verse 16 to verse 17. See if this follows in any logical way. Verse 16, in addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Very next verse, then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy, so they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. That is, rose up, angry, and arrested them when all we were out here doing is healing people. What's wrong with what we've been doing? What's wrong with setting people free from evil powers, causing people who have been at the gate beautiful for 30 years or 40 years of their life, and we said, rise up and walk, and he rose up and walked and leaped and praised God. Where did we go wrong? Where did we earn an arrest and a beating? You ever stepped out in ministry in your life? You stepped into hard places, you reached out to need, and the next thing you know, you're hurting. You reached out to heal in Jesus' name in some way that was right in front of you, and you reached out, and next thing you know, you're the one sucking wind, you're the one struggling. You were reaching out to people struggling, and now you're right there yourself struggling. Just because, understand this, just because we're struggling to breathe in the race of faith doesn't necessarily mean you've done anything wrong. Maybe it's hard because this hill just keeps climbing and you just keep running. That's why it's hard to breathe. The hill keeps climbing and you keep going. Every work empowered by the Spirit will be opposed by the enemy. Every work, big and small, every work empowered by the Spirit in your life and through your life will be opposed by the enemy. I love this statement. There's a a great commentary written by a New Testament a scholar named Patrick Schreiner on the book of Acts. It's my favorite of the Acts commentaries that, that I dip into. And here's what he says about the purpose of the book of Acts. Luke, that's the author of Acts, Luke writes to convince his audience that the bumpy start of the community of God is the plan of God. Luke's audience needs assurance that they are on the right path. In many ways, Acts can be seen as a series of onslaughts of Satan trying to thwart the spread of the word. Ironically, the onslaughts only propel it forward. Luke, therefore, reassures Christians of the nature and plan of God. This, he writes, is the primary purpose of Acts. In other words, don't be surprised by the onslaughts. They're serviceable to the advancement of the gospel. It's not, it's not a hindrance to the gospel at all. Matter of fact, that's what Paul ends the book of Acts by saying in chapter 28. He says, I'm in change, but the word is not bound. It's not like me. The word is trucking forward because it's an unstoppable God who carries it 
for you. You know you have a threefold enemy, right? Church history often calls it the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's just look at their resumes for a second of what we're up against. So the devil, there is an evil force, Satan, who opposes the rule of Jesus Christ. He is no toothless adversary. The apostle Peter said he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's roaming to and fro in the world seeking to devour, to pounce, to crush, to distract, to destroy. That's our enemy. The world. So there's the devil, then there's the world. The world in scripture sometimes is a phrase that is referring to the, the every culture in this world in terms of its fallenness. That is to say, because every culture in the world is filled with humans, and because humans are fallen and have fallen impulses, every system in society is injected with fallenness. Irrevocably, it's fallen. Every field of human knowledge, every field of human endeavor is tainted by original sin. Doesn't mean that it's as bad as it possibly could be, but there's some degree of brokenness in every human endeavor because the fall touched the way humans think. And everything we do and put our hands to is downstream of the way we think. And so because our minds are affected by the fall, everything we touch is tainted by original sin, even our best works. Augustine would say, even my tears of repentance are stained with sin. So there's the devil, there's the world, then there's the flesh. If that wasn't enough, we don't just have an outside enemy. We have an enemy within indwelling sin which we'll never be totally rid of until we see Jesus face to face. We will struggle against indwelling sin, impulses towards sin, temptations towards sin. In other words, if Satan took the day off, if the world and the devil took the day off, you'd still have your hands full with your own heart. Our own sinful impulses that are inside our own lives. So, what do you do with all that, right? Threefold enemy This is why so often the New Testament reminds Christians, not only is it possible that Christianity could involve hardship, I promise you it will. That's what Jesus said. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. The Apostle Peter says, why are you looking at this strange, this trial, this fiery trial, as if something strange is happening to you? World, flesh, devil, we're up against it. We're gonna walk with the wind in our face until the day we die. Opposition is expected. Second, obedience is required. Obedience is required. So there is a conflict between two authoritative voices that we see here in the New Testament. The apostles and then then the disciples would catch wind of these words that Jesus spoke that we recite on a weekly basis in Matthew chapter 28 called the Great Commission. And how did Jesus begin the words of the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he issues a command. It's not a request. It's a command. It's a commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. So then the question is, what happens when divinely ordained human authorities, read Romans chapter 12, government is a divinely ordained 
authority established by God. But what happens when a human authority decommissions the Great Commission? Says, I know God told you you have to do that, but you're not allowed to do that here. And here's the point we take away. We acknowledge human authorities, but our conscience is bound by God alone. That's what Martin Luther famously said when he was told to stop doing the things that he was doing and standing for the gospel in the 16th century. And he says, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot submit to what you're saying because God has spoken. That's what happens here in Acts chapter 5. Human authorities issue commands. Matter of fact, it's happened already in Acts chapter 4. You might have had deja vu because Chris was preaching on this a few weeks ago. In Acts chapter 4, verse 17, it's going to be on the screen. Here's what happened. But so that, and here's the religious authorities, so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of of Jesus. So there's one authority that has spoken. Verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's Peter and John's way of saying this is what they call a no-brainer. Because you're speaking above your pay grade. Someone else has already authorized and it's a king above all the kings. And he's told us what to do. You fast forward from chapter four to chapter five, and here's what we see in our text in verse 27. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, so there's the authorities, and the high priest asked, didn't we we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. Again, it's deja vu. They just said this. Last time you called us in, you told us not to do it, and we did it anyway. This time you call us in, we don't have some new thing to say. You're, you're going to beat us if, if you beat us, but we don't have anything new to say. In places where it's illegal to share the gospel, what are Christians saying, even today? These same words. We must obey God rather than men. There's a higher authority that has spoken on this issue. Look, we've sent Christians to places, to live in places where it's illegal to proselytize, where it's illegal to tell people the message of good news about the Christian faith and say, you should repent and believe. You should leave what you were believing before and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. We send people to those places, I hope we send a whole lot more to those places around the world. And when we commission them out and we pray for them, what are we saying? We're basically saying this. When you get there, to that part of the world, be an upstanding citizen in every categorical way except for one. Speak the good news. Tell people about Jesus. Urge them to repent and to believe because there's a king who outranks the kings in that part of the world. And he has spoken. And his command is, make disciples. His command is, every nation must hear this gospel. So there are officially no closed countries to gospel witness. They must hear about the Savior who came and lived and died and rose again. 
and that all who repent and believe and put their trust in him and follow him are saved and given eternal life and forgiven of all their sins and those who reject him will end up in judgment and in hell forever. That's the one message. And it goes on to say this God, when we put our trust in this Savior Jesus Christ, he begins to make all things new. Second Corinthians chapter five. If any man is in Christ, right, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. And what is a local church? A local church is ground zero of the newness. It's an embassy from another kingdom set up in the kingdoms of this world to show the fallen kingdoms of this world what happens when you bow your knee to Christ. New life happens. New creation happens. Righteousness, peace, and joy happens. Obedience is expected but, but doesn't that beg the question, how would we know and obey God's leading apart from God's word? If obedience is required, how do we know how to obey God if he hasn't spoken to us clearly in his word? You know, it's easy to get confused about who to obey in our culture. It's easy to get confused about your identity. It's easy to be confused about your purpose in this world. And even as a Christian, professing Christians, right, I can justify a lot of things by picking up a Bible and bending some verse in the direction of the things that I want, bending it toward my preferences and not taking God's word seriously. I can justify a lot of things by saying God is leading me to do such and such in my life. But if I claim, get this, if I claim that the spirit of God is leading me to disobey the word of God, I'm deceiving myself. That's the definition of self-deception. Brooke Hills, the, the reason we carefully, slowly read scripture together and study it line by line and passage by passage and study its theological claims, the reason that we study scripture carefully as we ought to is because the better we know God's word, the better we'll know God's will. And the better we know God's word, the better we'll know God. The better we'll know the God who speaks in his word. And we can't live in this world with a compass that works if we don't know God who designed the world, who made the world, who made you and me. So God has chosen to reveal himself fully and finally and authoritatively in his inscripturated word and in his incarnate word. And his inscripturated word ultimately and centrally points to his incarnate word, Jesus Christ, whom when we trust in Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ, what's happening? You are living with the grain of how God made the universe. And to reject Jesus Christ, you're sowing seeds that will reap a harvest of pain leading to final judgment. The stakes couldn't be higher. So what we need is God's voice speaking louder in our ears than every other voice in the world. We need God's voice speaking and clarifying and saying, son, daughter, I made you. You belong to me. This is who you are. This is where you flourish. This right here is a broken cistern. You drink it, you'll still be thirsty. Over here, there's life, there's blessing, there's abundance. We, where do we hear that? We hear it in his word. Let's give ourselves as a church 
to the continued study of God's word. Opposition is expected, obedience is required, and third, omnipotence prevails. Omnipotence prevails. God wins. (laughs) God wins. And the early church seemed totally convinced. You couldn't pull them out of the conviction that they knew. There's nothing that's stopping him in the world. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. There is, a, you think by way of analogy about unconquerable forces in the world. There's an unconquerable force in the world that some of you are acquainted with if you've ever had a baby. Babies can be just little unconquerable forces, right? It doesn't fit. They have those soft, chubby hands, but they're such powerful little hands, right? I mean, you read books. I remember when, when Paul and I, when we had our first baby, when we, you know, you read all the books so that you can find out how to turn this little baby as quickly as possible into a sharing baby, a, a happy, happy baby, a sleeping, schedule-keeping baby, right? These are the things you read the books for, and the problem is you read all the books that tell you how to have a schedule-keeping, sharing, happy baby, and the books were filled with lies. <laughs> the book, they sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> To quote from a movie we'll all start watching here pretty soon, after Thanksgiving, after, right? Fill with lies. And to, do the, to the degree that you believed the promises of those books and methods, right, you got frustrated because results were mixed at best, right? That's best case scenario, results were mixed. We talk about frustrating, right? So we're talking about parental frustration. Pivot over to the frustration of these these authorities, these religious authorities, you talk about frustration. How powerless do you feel when you give warnings and you mean it and your eyebrows are furrowed as they can possibly be when you say, you preach this, you're going to be in big trouble. And the people leave your presence and they preach. And not only do they preach, people are coming to faith all over the plate, left, right, and center. And then you're like, get back in here. Uh, Don't make me count to three, right? (laughs) They come back in, they say, guess what? We're not talking anymore. We're throwing you in jail. And they throw them in jail and an angel breaks them out, right? This is extremely frustrating, right? They send people to the jail and they say, well, the jail was locked, but nobody was inside. This is incredibly frustrating because the mission just keeps being unstoppable. And as soon as they get out of the jail, what do they do? They go back to preaching in the name of Jesus. And what happens? People start believing in Jesus, And then they say, all right, come back in here. Third time, third time's a charm. This time, we're gonna beat you. This time, you're gonna feel it. Physically, you're gonna feel it. We're gonna flog you today. And they leave in verse 41, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer. This is peak frustration. And then what happens? They preach and people come to faith. Christian, no matter where you end up living out the mission of the gospel as a follower of Jesus, take heart. God's purposes in our lives and in his world are unstoppable. They're unstoppable. I think we have a hard time believing this in our everyday lives. I think part of it is just because we're watching the news. And the news has convinced us God is not in control and his gospel is not unstoppable apparently, right? So we can say with our heads, 
we know that God is in control, but our social media feed sounds like we're in full-on panic mode. If I don't do this thing, if I don't say this thing, the kingdom crumbles. <laughs> Listen to your ancestors in the faith in the book of Acts, and what are they saying? No panic allowed, no despair allowed. God will get the job done. You be faithful with what's in front of you. God will get the job done. They leave the floggings and they praise God because there's almost a sense in which they're slapping high fives because they say the flack is always heaviest right above the target. When you, when you found the enemy's honey hole, that's where the heat is gonna be the most significant. Let's keep coming back to this here spot. We found the spot. <laughs> David Wells, a great theologian who taught uh, theology, systematic theology at Gordon-Conwell Seminary for many years, he wrote a number of really helpful books about sizing up our culture in the West and what gospel faithfulness looks like. One of his books many, many years ago, he wrote this. It's his book called The Courage to be Protestant. He said, reading today's how-to literature, one has to draw the conclusion that the church's days are numbered unless we rush in to prop it up with our know-how. God, you see, has more on his hands than he can handle. We look like the soldiers of some sorry nation that are very brave when they are safe in their protected barracks, but at the first sight of the enemy lay down their arms and run. The truth is, there is nothing in our postmodern world that is a serious threat or an insurmountable obstacle to the will of God. <laughs> that is awesome. That's truth that holds on to Christians. Look, in the faces of the challenges that we see around us, we have to remember it's not ultimately our job to accomplish the mission. God accomplishes the mission. We're faithful in our big and small ways and God is accomplishing the mission. We bear witness to what Jesus has already accomplished in his living, dying, and rising. And as we faithfully do this with what's in front of us, along with our brothers and sisters in Christ here in the city and around the world, we will see evidence of the unstoppable power of the gospel in the world. That's a conviction. It's not a hypothesis. It's a conviction. It's grounded in the character of God. He's sovereign. He's not going to stop being that tomorrow. No matter what shows up on the news. So Brooke Hills, three things. Number one, let God be God. And this was a statement the Protestant reformer, again, Martin Luther, would often make when he found Christians who were troubled by things that they can't control and things that it's not their job to control anyway. He would frequently say to Philip Melanchthon, his protege in the faith, who was very timid by nature, and he would say, Philip, read Psalm 46 and let the devil do his worst. It's okay. God is in control. He would say, we must let, learn to let God be God. And that was Luther's way of basically saying, stop trying to run the universe. God has the whole world in his hands. In other words, Psalm 46, be still and know he is God. Let God be God. Second, trust and obey. It's God's job to be sovereign. It's ours to trust and to obey. And the more we see how in control he is, how competent, how capable, how able, how faithful he is, the more we're gonna wanna trust him. 
God's size, as it grows in our eyes, the more we're gonna wanna trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we're gonna wanna do what he says. To believe, to throw our lives entirely into what he says matters. So trust and obey. And third and finally, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God's word gives us all the commands we need for us to be alive and to be godly. Everything we need, Peter says, for life and godliness is given to us in God's word. So we don't have to be paralyzed by indecision. We don't have to hear angels singing over this choice or that choice in the world. God has told us, these are the big principles. These are the big commands. This is the simple mission that I've called you to. And within that, there's a lot of freedom to do what I'm calling you to do. So we don't have to be vexed, wondering, am I missing God's will? I feel like I might be outside of God's will. Read, um, read Kevin DeYoung's excellent little book called Just Do Something. It'll set you free. It is such a biblically argued vision of, of what it means to follow and discern God's will. Basically, the point is, risk is right. We risk intentionally by following the Spirit's leading even when we can't see the outcome in advance. Church, hear this. Why would we fear the pain of running uphill when God chose the hill? Why would we fear the pain of running uphill and the glory that awaits at the finish line when we know that the glory that waits us for us at the finish line will outweigh the pain of the ascent on our way getting there. These are foundations for endurance. For going to endure, we're gonna need three convictions to settle into the deepest places of our lives. Number one, opposition is expected, obedience is required, and omnipotence prevails.